Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Beloved, if you have your Bibles with you, or you can turn in your pew Bible, Our scripture reading today is from Colossians 3. Let's hear God's powerful and fallible word. Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are of the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here then, there is not Jew and Greek, Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Praise God for his word. Pray with me, would you? O gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your powerful living word, and we thank you for your spirit who teaches us and enlightens it for us. And Lord, we pray that you would now be with us, pour out your spirit upon us, that we would be 
edified and that you would be glorified. Lord, we ask that you would touch hearts today. We ask this in your name of, the pre- of our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, beloved, with the new year comes New Year's resolutions. What is it about a new year that compels us to make resolutions? Is it that changing to a new calendar is an opportunity to establish new routines, to make a fresh start? So we make promises to ourselves to eat better, to exercise more, to make better choices in the use of our time, to read more, play more, study harder, set career goals, or spend more time with the family. So when the clock strikes 12 a.m. on New Year's, what is it? It's out with the old and in with the new, and it's off to the races. And yet we find that New Year's resolutions don't have a very long shelf life, do they? As one person said, a New Year's resolution is something that goes in one year and out the other. And though New Year's resolutions come and go, beloved, if you are a believer in Christ, if you are a believer in Christ, then if you have experienced his mercy and his grace and entered into a life-giving relationship with him, well, then you have experienced the ultimate, unchanging New Year's resolution. In fact, we could take it a step further. What we have in Christ far exceeds any result from a New Year's resolution. For what have we experienced, beloved, in knowing Christ? It is a new life revolution, a dramatic, transformative change that is permanent and eternal and growing as you grow more and more in your relationship with Jesus, a transformation that outshines any resolution to eat more veggies and eat less dessert and with greater results. For when you put your faith in Christ, what happened to you? Well, it was the ultimate out with the old and in with the new. As the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul is describing the new identity that we receive when we put our faith in Christ. The radical change that occurs in us and to us in our union with Christ, and that is that we have become a new creation. Well, what does it mean to be a new creation? Our scripture lesson from Colossians 3 today describes for us in some measure what Paul means when he says, those of you who are in Christ, who have your identity rooted in him, you are a new creation. You could say that Colossians 3 is like a commentary on 2 Corinthians 5:17. And when we look at Colossians 3, 
we see several things that help us understand the deep transformative change that has taken place in us when we have put our faith in Christ. As a new creation in Christ, we have been raised with Christ, and, with an, uh, and as a new creation in Christ, your life is hidden with, with Christ. Paul was addressing the issue of identity with the Colossians. The Colossian Christians were experiencing identity theft, as one commentator put it. False teachers were infiltrating the church, offering a different gospel, which was no gospel at all, creating doubt and confusion among the flock over who they were in Christ, in their identity in Christ. These false teachers were pushing the narrative that trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, for the forgiveness of sins, just wasn't enough. The Lord Jesus wasn't enough. No, if you really want to be spiritual, if you really want to climb the summit of salvation, faith in Jesus is just the starting point. What you need to do is add additional things to earn your acceptance with God. You need to observe festivals, and you should abstain from eating certain foods. And while you're at it, why not throw in a side order of angel worship for good measure? So Paul confronts these distortions by reminding the Colossians first of the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of the gospel in chapters 1 and 2. And then in chapter 3, he reminds them of who they are in Christ, their real identity. What does it mean to be a new creation in Christ? In verse 1, Paul says that they have been risen with Christ. And what does it mean to be risen with Christ? Well, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, Paul describes what it means to be risen in Christ. And to understand what it means to be risen in Christ, Paul first tells them in Ephesians 2 of what they were like before they came to know Christ, that they were dead people walking. In Ephesians 2.1, he says, Before Christ entered into your life, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And like dead people, you were deaf to the hearing the truth. And like dead people, we were blind to the light of the gospel. And like dead people, our lips were silent to acknowledge Christ. And like dead people... We could do nothing, we could do nothing at all to save ourselves from the sin that shackled us. But the weird thing is, is that we actually liked our slavery. For our hearts were stone cold, dead sent against the Lord. And in our rebellion, we relished being under the dominion, under the power of the ruler of this world. And beloved, we would be utterly lost and doomed had it not been for the Lord's grace to us. For as Paul writes in Ephesians 2, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God. 
For out of His grace, our Savior Jesus took our stony hearts, our dead hearts, and He made them come alive to Him, and He gave us a spiritual heart transplant, and He put His Spirit within us so that we could hear and understand the gospel and see the light of His love. And He raised us up to new life so that our transformed hearts are united with Him. And to be united with Him means that we share in His death and in His resurrection. Just as Christ died on the cross for our sins, so we died to the reigning power of sin in our lives. We no longer stand under God's wrath and condemnation because of Christ's saving work on the cross. We are no longer under sin's condemnation. And we are no longer under its command. It no longer has ownership over us. Its power has been broken. We have been unshackled from our slavery to sin. The dominion of darkness has no claim over us anymore. And we are now part of the gracious kingdom of Christ And just as Christ has been raised from the dead to transforming life, so we have been given new life in Him. And with this radical transformation, our life is centered on Christ, who is our life. So our focus is on Him and where He is, heavenward. Our focus is upward not inward on ourselves or on comparing ourselves to others. No, we are seated with Christ in the heavens where he reigns at the right hand of the Father. And from the reigning Christ, we receive all, all the spiritual resources we need to live this new life he has given us so that our real focus future and forced to live is rooted in the risen Christ. Well, you may be thinking that's all very well and good, but what earthly purpose can there be to know that my ultimate focus and direction is rooted in Christ in the heavens? It sounds so way out there. So what does it mean to be, what does this mean to me in the here and now? Well, over the years, I've counseled men who as children were abused by one or both of their parents, usually the father. And they heard damning, damaging words from their father who should have given them words of affection and affirmation and encouragement. They heard words like, you're ugly, you're stupid, you'll never amount to anything. And how did these men respond growing up? They thought, well, I'm going to earn my dad's approval. But when they brought home the A, what was the response? Why wasn't it an A plus? And when they brought home an A plus, it was, well, why aren't you the captain of the team and the lead in the school play? And then as Christians, grappling with this pain, they began to absorb these truths. 
that they are united to the risen Christ and all that Christ has with his heavenly Father, so these men have with their Father in heaven. And they came to understand this, that just as the Father in heaven says to his beloved Son, Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, so he says to me, this is my beloved Son on whom I am well pleased because I'm in union with Christ in whom my Father delights and my Heavenly Father delights in me. He delights in me. So I've gotten a front row seat as I watch God's powerful word take root in their lives and become the warp and woof of their identity. And the Lord began to heal them. And the truth that they are a new creation in Christ brings healing to those deep, deep wounds. So, beloved, can we not say with our hearts a hearty amen to know that we are risen with Christ in whom we find our strength in his unlimited power and we find hope because our Savior reigns over all. Well, if that weren't enough, Paul goes on to define our identity in Christ as a life hidden in Christ in verse 3. I love that phrase. Your life is hidden in Christ. Let's briefly park there for a moment and consider some of the things conveyed by that phrase. Your life is hidden in Christ. Hidden in Christ makes you think of the Lord Jesus, hidden in a tomb for three days, having died for our sins. And because Christ died for all of our sins, for all of our sins, and we are in union with him, then once again we are reminded that the power of sin no longer reigns in us, and the judgment we faced for our sins was buried with Christ once and for all. Our condemnation is dead so that we can sing, My sin Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Beloved, you are fully forgiven and accepted in your union with Christ. And so now we can approach a holy, just God without any fear of his judgment or wrath. What else is conveyed by the phrase hidden with Christ, who is your life? Well, that phrase speaks to the unseen but very real spiritual transformation that has occurred in us that Christ, our Savior, indwells within you through the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean to you? To know that you have the Creator, the Savior, the King of the universe indwelling within you through the Holy Spirit. Your life is hidden with Christ. I think a buried treasure something locked away, securely kept, 
And your life in Christ is exactly that. Safe and secure, locked away. It's so hidden, it's outside the realm of time itself. For what did Scripture teach? Ephesians 1.4, that the Lord chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. And since the Lord chose us to be, his eternal, to be in his eternal kingdom, and he is unchangeable, then our status as his chosen sons and daughters can never, ever be changed. It's safe. It's secure. It's all locked up. Now, what does it mean for you to know that in this world, in this world of broken promises and mistrust, that there is something, something that you can have complete confidence in? That your relationship with Christ is secure, and it is He who secures it. It is hidden with Him, and He will never allow you to fully falter. You may stumble, you may fall, and your faith can be feeble at times, but in the end, our relationship with Christ is like buried treasure, locked away securely. So we see that there's this paradox. On the one hand, we would be the most humble of people because we didn't deserve any of this. We didn't deserve God's mercy or grace at all in our rebellion against our God. We were rebels without cause, rebelling against a gracious creator. But what has Christ done for us? He saved us by his grace alone. And that is very, indeed, very humbling, isn't it? And even though we are the most humble of people, we should also be the most confident. Not arrogantly confident in ourselves, but confident in who we are in Christ, in our identity in Christ secure in his abiding love who will preserve us to the end so that we can boldly sing against me earth and hell combined but on my side is power divine jesus is all and he is mine why should i fear the darkest hour now even though the very real spiritual realities we possess in Christ are hidden. Nevertheless, they are perceptible to the world by the way we live. So starting with verse 5, Paul goes on to say that this new reality, this new life in Christ, what it should look like. And he expresses it in terms of things that we are to put off and things that we are to put on. In verses 5 through 9, he lists the things that we are to put off which we are dead to, things of our former life. Like clothing that we have outgrown, our old way of life no longer fits us with our new life in Christ. And then in verses 10 through 17, he tells us what to put on that fits our new life in Christ. And some commentators see here in Paul's putting off and putting on a reference to the practice in the early church at the baptism of a new convert. 
how at their baptism they would take off their worn, dirty tunic, and then once baptized, they would receive a new one to wear to symbolize the new life they have in their union with Christ. Now, we don't have time to go over these lists of qualities in detail, but let's cover them in broad brush strokes, and you can go back to them later for personal study and for application. But in a nutshell, what Paul is saying here is, be who you really are now in your new life in Christ. And to do so, you need to put off certain things, things that are dead to you as you have been transferred from the life under the first Adam to life now under the second Adam, Jesus Christ. That life under the first Adam is dead to you. So put to death those things which mark who you once were. And he lists them in verses 5 through 9. And notice in these verses that Paul's thought moves from the sinful behavior to the underlying motivation from which it arises. He starts with the sinful act and then moves to the intent. He first lists sexual immorality which is any kind of sexual activity outside the boundaries that the Lord has established in his word. And then he moves to the more general impurity, and then he begins to start zeroing in on inner motives, dishonorable passions, and then evil desires, getting to the very root, the very core of the heart issue, covetousness, which is idolatry. So in the final analysis, what is the very root of sin? It is idolatry. And what is idolatry? It is the worship of the self. It is usurping Christ's authority and reign over my life in order to pursue something which is a means to an end. And that means to an end is me. Me, 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 all me, and more me. I pursue something because I think it will ultimately fulfill me or bring me contentment or bring me peace. So the focus is on serving me and dethroning Christ who has that rightful position. And beloved, that is 180 degrees in opposition to our new life in Christ, is it not? Now, in verse 8, Paul switches direction. He moves from the inward attitude to the outward sinful behavior, starting with ungodly anger to the expression of it, wrath and malice, which is expressed by sinful speech, slander and obscene talk, and then to complete the sins of the of speech, he adds lying in verse 9. And these attitudes and actions are from the old life. He then goes on to tell us what to put on in regards to our new life, our real life. We put off impurity, and what do we put on? We put on similarity. It's similarity because in verses 12 through 14, we find that these qualities are the qualities of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, 
and the fruit of the Spirit. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearing and forgiving, ending with the virtue of, that unites them all together, love. So we live to our potential in Christ as new creations when we live out his character, empowered by his spirit. And as we put off and we put on, the fruit of our new life results in unity, in unity. Verses 11 and 15, Paul stresses the unity that we have in Christ, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free. These things that once divided us, racial barriers, cultural and social distinctions, they're all, all superseded by the Spirit who unites us for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And last but not least, there is totality. Verse 17, we live all of our life under the reign of Christ, doing everything to please him. Whether we're taking an exam or doing our taxes or working at the job, we do all for Christ endeavoring to do it so as to bring him glory with grateful hearts for all that he has done for us. To grow in our identity in Christ as new creations, we are to put off impurity and put on those spirit-supplied graces that grow us to greater resemblance in Christ in other words, we are to grow in our relationship with him. We are to take on more and more of the family traits and become more and more like the second Adam, Jesus Christ, as we put to death more and more the first Adam who is dead to us. And Paul instructs us that this would be the focus of our lives as we live for him, doing everything everything for his glory. Or to express it another way, we don't put off certain things and put on other things in order to gain the Lord's approval or acceptance. No, we are to put off the old ways and put on his ways because these new qualities are who we really are in our union with Christ and who we are becoming as we grow through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through His Word. So, beloved, we live in this tension as followers of Christ between two worlds, between the now and the not yet. Our real life is hidden with the, the risen Christ but we still struggle in this life with our mortal fallen nature, which continues to rear its ugly head. And so there is this battle that we live out in this life between who we really are in Christ and who we were in our old nature. And what is Paul exhorting us to do? He's exhorting us to live out experientially who we are positionally as new creations united to the risen Lord. Well, how do you do that? It seems like a tall order. Well, Paul tells us in verse 1 to seek the things above, and in verse 2, set your mind on things above. 
Again, that our thoughts and our focus is heavenward where Christ is. Now that sounds somewhat ethereal, not very practical. And it could be misinterpreted to mean that we should retreat from the world, not engage with it. No, when Paul says, set your mind on things above, he is saying, put on lenses to see the world from an eternal perspective, to have a gospel-focused vision. It means seeing the eternal in the temporal, mundane, daily grind of life. With all of its frustrations and disappointments and difficulties, to see the challenges around me through the providence of, through the prism of His providential care, and so recognize that the Lord isn't so much interested in my comfort as He is in shaping my character through my circumstances. Set your mind on things above. Alistair Begg says the word set doesn't mean a casual glance, but it is an intense gaze of persevering efforts. It means to have a laser-like focus on disciplining your mind, keeping a laser-like Christ-centered focus on life, an eternal perspective. Years ago, I was counseling a man His wife wanted me to see him because she was at her wit's end. He would spend hours on the computer at night, locked away from the rest of the family. So one day before we were to meet, I was driving past this cemetery a few miles from the church, and I noticed a freshly dug open grave, and it gave me an idea. When I met with Joe, I said, Joe, come with me. And we drove to the cemetery and stood by that open grave. And I said to him, now, Joe, imagine that your family is gathered here and that this is your grave and you're about to be buried. What would your family say about you? What memories would they have of you? And I did it sort of like the ghost from Christmas, from Christmas Carol, the ghost of Christmas future, who points Scrooge at his dead shrouded body. I said, look, Joe, look. (laughs) I figured if it worked for Scrooge, it would work for Joe. And I basically counseled Joe what Paul instructs here to do to keep an eternal perspective in his earthly life and the way he dealt with his family. And he did change his attitude and his actions because he was truly a new creation in Christ, but he wasn't acting like one. So, beloved, the good news is that we are never, ever stuck. That is why we can put off the old and put on the new. We aren't victims of our past. And yes, yes, we struggle with besetting sins, but we can battle them. We can wrestle with our our old nature which, while in our mortality, but we are no longer slaves to it because we are united to Christ, risen with Him, and our life is hidden with Him. 
And we have his word to renew our minds, for how else can we speak spiritual hymns and songs unless God's powerful word indwells within us deeply? For we have the spiritual resources of the ascended Christ at our disposal to help us in our battle against our old nature. After all, Paul wouldn't tell us to put off the old and put on the new if we couldn't do it. Correction, if the Lord himself couldn't do it in us through his spirit and through his life-transforming word. So, beloved, for those of us who are in Christ, it really can be out with the old and in with the new. Well, two final observations by way of an application. As we said, our life in Christ is hidden, but it should be perceptible. People cannot see the spiritual realities that are ours of Christ dwelling in us, but they can see the reality of Christ by our lives. It makes me think of the verse 2 Corinthians 5, 15 through 17. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Our new life in Christ may be hidden, but people should get a whiff of the gospel from us. When people observe our lives, shouldn't they say, I smell something. There's a peculiar scent about you. And to, add, and to some, we might smell pretty rank. As Paul says in verse 16, we might smell like death to them as we live out the gospel. I think because the gospel sheds a light on their own sin or rank self-righteousness, righteousness, and they cannot bear the stench of their own impending judgment. But to those who Christ is drawing to himself, there is the sweet smell of life about us as our new life in Christ reflects the beauty of the gospel. So the question is, as a new creation in Christ, how strong do you smell of the gospel? When people get a whiff of your life, do they sense a particular aroma because you are one of the Lord's peculiar people whose life is hidden in Christ. Lastly, one final observation about our text. I was born at the tail end of the baby boomer generation when it was hip to be radical. And what did my generation strive to usher in? but a new age, a new world order of peace and love and freedom, a radical transformation of society apart from God. And the mantra of the age was the precept of Marlo Thomas, you're free to be you and me. The message is do whatever you like, be whoever you are as long as you don't hurt anyone. And it's all good. It's all cool. Peace, baby. It was out with the old and in with the new. And it all sounded so good. 
And yet some 60 years later, we live with some of the disastrous consequences of seeking happiness and peace and our identity apart from our Creator. And we live with the generational ripple effect of those rebellious choices. And all those promises of free love and joy and world peace, well, all the dreams of the hate Ashbury, Ashbury crowd went up in a hazy puff of smoke. Poof. But here's the rub, brothers and sisters. Here's the rub, my fellow baby boomers. In this postmodern world, we as believers in Christ are the real radicals because we have been radically changed by Christ and our worldview is radically different from this world. And in the transformation of our hearts, the Lord Jesus has revolutionized our lives so that we get to experience in some measure now what the hippies of the 60s longed for. Love, joy, peace, and a unity that would make a one-world globalist green with envy. And we get to experience in some measure now what we will fully possess when Christ comes again to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. So, beloved, here's a New Year's resolution for us. Let's put into practice our new life revolution. Let's be who we really are. Let's be more fully and faithfully the smelly radicals we are in Christ as, he gives off, as we give off the sweet sense of our Savior's saving grace and as we live lives where we put off the old, dead nature and we put on the transformed, transforming nature through our union with Christ. And in doing so, what is hidden in us, our life in Christ, will be made manifest by our life for Christ, by our purity, by our unity, and by our love for Him, which spills out to one another. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, how we praise you and thank you for what you have done, the amazing transformation that you have done in our hearts, that you have rescued us, that you have taken our cold stone, dead hearts, and that you made them alive to, Christ, to you and to your word through Christ and through his sacrificial death. And we pray, Lord, that there, if there be any here who have not yet put their trust in you, we pray that you would be at work to do for them what you have done for us. Oh, Lord, we pray, Lord, that with such a tremendous gift of your grace that we would not waste it, that we would indeed put on Christ and put off those things which displease you, things of the first Adam, and help us to live more faithfully in the reality of who we are in the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation, 
through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.